Pro-lifers are inconsistent if they support capital punishment. Outlawing abortion will not stop abortion. The pro-life goal should be to eliminate the underlying factors that contribute to abortion, not try to outlaw abortion itself. Pro-lifers only care about the unborn. If aborted babies go to heaven, why be against abortion? We'll consider these objections and more today on the Thinking to Believe podcast. Welcome, friends. Thanks for tuning in again to the Thinking to Believe podcast. My name is Jason Dooley, and we've been on a journey over the past uh, few months now talking about abortion. Today is episode 17, and it will be the final episode in this series. And then we'll be moving on to a new series that I'll announce at the end of this podcast. We'll be looking at a number of additional objections, as we've been doing so for the past few weeks. And there are other objections that I could get into, but this has already gone on long enough, and I think I've hit the most important objections. But there's always more objections that could be raised and could be addressed. Uh, But in addition to the objections, I want to end out the podcast by talking about what you can do. It's one thing to be informed about abortion, to have the knowledge to have the tactics, but what do we actually do to make a difference? So we'll talk about that at the very end after we've looked at a number of final objections to cover in this last episode. So without further ado, let me get right into the objections, starting with what's called the seamless garment objection. This objection says that if you're pro-life, with respect to the unborn, then by the same logic, you should be opposed to capital punishment. That we're being hypocritical if you are pro-life regarding abortion, but you are not pro-life in regards to capital punishment. This objection is raised not only by non-Christians who are looking to point fingers at pro-lifers, but it's even raised by other Christians. Could be a Christian who is for abortion, Um, It could be a Christian who is against capital punishment and against abortion, and they think that anybody who is for capital punishment and against abortion is somehow being inconsistent, and they're violating the pro-life ethic. So wherever this objection comes from, is it true that there's hypocrisy involved by being opposed to abortion but not being opposed to capital punishment? Well, let's just assume for the sake of argument that there was some hypocrisy involved. And really, it's not so much hypocrisy as it is inconsistency. So let's say that somebody is being inconsistent. So what? (laughs) Even if you're inconsistent, it doesn't mean that your position on abortion is wrong. So if this objection comes up in the context of abortion and someone says, well, you're being inconsistent or you're being a hypocrite because you are for capital punishment, you could say, okay. Let's say I am being inconsistent. How does that affect my position on abortion? Maybe I need to change my position on capital punishment, but that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about abortion. So where is my argument for abortion mistaken? In other words, this objection is a red herring. You have to show what's wrong with somebody's argument against abortion, not point out that they are inconsistent elsewhere. And again, it can be Uh, good to point that out. If somebody was indeed being inconsistent, 
you can get them to think more deeply about you know their their logic and whether it's being applied consistently but that in itself does not undermine the argument for the pro-life view this objection also misunderstands what it means to be pro-life to be pro-life doesn't mean that we are against any and all killing we're not janists we're not pacifists that's not what pro-life means Pro-life means that we are opposed to the unjust taking of human life. In other words, murder. We're against murder. And because we believe that abortion takes the life of an innocent human being in an unjust way, that abortion is murder. That's all that being pro-life means. So this objection to say, if you are against abortion, you need to be against capital punishment, it confuses guilt with innocence. It confuses guilt with innocence. Unborn human beings are innocent. They possess the right to life. But murderers are guilty human beings who have forfeited their right to life by unjustly taking the life of another human being. This isn't a a podcast on capital punishment, but I think it is unjust for somebody who has unjustly taken the life of another human being to be allowed to keep their own life. Justice requires that their life also be taken. Anything less is not just. So in the case of a murderer, they are a guilty human being, and guilty human beings can be worthy of capital punishment, whereas innocent human beings should never be killed. If they are killed, that is murder. All right, objection number two, outlawing abortion will not stop abortion. Okay. So what? Are you arguing that we should not outlaw anything unless we know that once the law has been enacted, it's going to prevent 100% of crime? Because if that's the case, then we couldn't enact any legislation. I mean, you can't have laws against bank robbery unless you could guarantee that nobody will ever rob a bank again after you've passed the law. Now, clearly something's wrong-headed if that's the presupposition that's being made here. It's true. Outlawing abortion is not going to stop all abortion. But the purpose of a law is not to prevent the crime per se. Now, obviously, we do want the crime to be prevented, and we hope that it will diminish the numbers of, of crimes being committed. But the real purpose of the law is to give the citizenry grounds to prosecute those who engage in that particular action that has been legislated against. So when we make a law against murder, nobody thinks that that after that law has been passed, no one's ever going to murder anybody again. But because we have a law in the books against murder, it allows us to incarcerate or to um, kill the individual who has murdered other human beings. So the ultimate goal of a law is for the good of society. It's the safety of society. 
And society is going to be protected when there are laws that deter people from choosing moral wrongs or that give us the grounds to punish those who engage in that sort of behavior. So the issue is not whether or not people are going to break the law, but whether or not we should stand by and allow for innocent, defenseless children to be slaughtered. And I think, obviously, we should not do so. But laws also do dissuade people from doing what's prohibited. I mean, let's just be honest here. You know, when when there was laws, um, when there were laws against marijuana usage, recreational marijuana usage, did people still smoke marijuana? Yeah. But there were other people who would not do so because of the fear of getting caught, of being prosecuted, paying fines, doing jail time. And that dissuades people from engaging in those types of behaviors. Once you decriminalize marijuana, the usage is going to go way up. We saw the same thing with abortion. Yes, there were abortions that were happening illegally before Roe versus Wade was decided on. Um, However, the number of abortions skyrocketed after it was legalized. There's no question that laws dissuade people from doing what is prohibited. So we should want to pass laws against things that are immoral, not only to be able to prosecute people who then break those laws and punish them, but also to dissuade people from doing those things. I mean, there's laws against spousal abuse. It doesn't stop people from abusing their spouse, but it allows us to prosecute them and it dissuades people from engaging in that type of behavior. Laws also set the moral standard because everyone has the idea that what is legal must be moral. In fact, this question often comes up in the context of certain things like whether it be you know, same-sex marriage or marijuana usage, uh, abortion. People say, well, but if it's wrong, then why is it legal? Because they presume that things that are wrong should be illegal. Now, it doesn't follow that every wrong must be legislated against. For example, it's wrong to lie, but there are no laws against lying, at least under most circumstances, because uh, for various practical reasons. Um, So there are some things that are immoral that you may not legislate against, but in general, people understand that the law uh, legislates that which is good. It prescribes or proscribes according to what is good. So the law is a moral teacher. It tells us what is right, what is good. It tells society what is morally acceptable. And that's, for example, why you had so many abortions that occurred after Roe versus Wade was passed. And you didn't have as many abortions before that because people made the assumption that abortion must be morally acceptable since it is being allowed by law. All right, objection number three. The pro-life goal should be to eliminate the underlying factors that cause women to obtain abortions rather than trying to outlaw abortion itself. Now, I should say that the pro-life goal is not necessarily to outlaw abortions. The pro-life goal is to eliminate abortions. Outlawing abortions is one aspect uh, toward that goal, but... As I just discussed, even if there are laws against abortion, you could still have people who abort. I mean, there's laws against speeding, and yet lots and lots of people speed. So the goal is not just to have a law against it, but to make abortion unthinkable, that nobody would have abortions. Like, we have laws against slavery, and nobody in this country owns slaves. 
Why is that? Even though there's people in this country who speed against the speed laws, they commit murder, even though there's murder laws, why do they not have slaves? Like It's unthinkable. We want abortion to be unthinkable. So our goal is not just to outlaw abortion, it's to eliminate abortion. And I can agree that part of that work should be underlying or eliminating those underlying factors that contribute to abortion, like poverty and you know, relationship issues that you can try to improve people's relationships. But this objection is often framed in the sense of like, oh, you pro-lifers are focusing on the wrong thing. And this is often an objection that's raised by quote-unquote pro-lifers, the liberal pro-lifers, the progressive Christians who don't want to take a hard stand against abortion. They want to focus more on the social aspects and so they focus on the social aspects that often lead women to abortion and say, that's where our energy should be spent. I'm not opposed to doing that, but we cannot focus on that to the exclusion of actually trying to stop the abortions themselves. Sometimes you can't fix all the underlying causes, but we should still be opposed and try to eliminate abortion, even if some of the underlying causes are still there. I mean, poverty can lead to stealing, but we don't take we don't say that stealing is morally acceptable or you know make it in the law so that it's legal to steal just because poverty hasn't been done away with. So even if you could eliminate all the factors that lead women toward an abortion, having a law that permits abortion would still be unjust in the same way that having a law that permitted spousal abuse would be unjust or not having any laws against spousal abuse, or not having any laws about slavery? Um, What if you said, well, you know, let's just try to eliminate all the different factors that contribute to people wanting to have slaves, or that contribute to them beating their spouses. Let's focus on trying to eliminate those factors. Okay, let's focus on that. But that doesn't mean we don't have a law saying you can't beat your spouse, you can't own another person, and you can't kill your own children. Furthermore, outlawing abortion will save more babies than you could save just by trying to uh, eliminate the causal factors that are involved in women choosing abortions, because most of the causal factors that lead to an abortion cannot be eliminated. For example, some people just don't want to have any more children. Well, how can you eliminate that? How can you eliminate a woman's desire not to have any more kids? She thinks she has too many already, or it's you know, well, I'm in the midst of of college and this is going to interfere with my college degree or my career. Well, there's nothing you can do to eliminate that sort of a thing. So you have to have laws in place that prevent women from choosing to do uh, a horrific act to their own child. All right. Pro-lifers only care about the unborn. While they tell women not to abort, they do nothing to help those women after they have heeded their advice. Or in the words of Joyce Arthur, she says, although anti-abortionists call themselves pro-life and claim to want to save babies, they do little or nothing to help children once they're born. This is a common attack against the pro-life point of view. And again, this is one of those cases where even if it were true, it's like, are you saying that Unless I'm willing to solve more problems, I can't solve one problem. So if I can't stop this one problem until I stop other problems, 
I have to work on all. I mean, that's like telling somebody, well, you can't focus on stopping cancer and finding a cure to cancer unless you also focus on stopping AIDS and uh, diabetes and all these other diseases. No, I mean, those things are important too. But it's often more effective when your focus is on one thing. So there's nothing wrong with somebody focusing on one element. It is a moral good to stop people from murdering their children, even if you don't help them afterwards. And we're not under any moral obligation here. I mean, arguing as though if you're going to prevent women legally, you know, and, and with through moral teaching, tell them that they should not kill their own children, then somehow you're responsible to take care of those children once they're born. How does that follow? That'd be like me walking down the street in San Francisco where there's tons of homeless people and I see somebody about to murder a homeless man and I prevent them from doing so. And I work to pass legislation to prevent homeless people from being murdered. And I'm accused saying, well, if you're not going to allow me to murder them, then you need to be responsible for paying for their care. Well, how does that follow? That doesn't follow at all. I'm not morally responsible to take care of, of your children, of your decisions, just because I call out that killing your children is morally unacceptable and should be prevented. But it's not true that pro-lifers only care about the unborn and they do nothing to help women after they're born. There are pro-life pregnancy centers all over this country in fact, there are way more pregnancy centers than there are abortion centers in this country. And these pregnancy centers not only try to help these women you know, to choose life and to not kill their babies and to, to bring their baby to term, but they also help these women with the supplies that they need, the training that they need in order to raise their children. So it's just not true. Many Christians who are pro-life are are adopt are in the adoption business. They're helping to adopt children, and they often uh, pro life Christians adopt children themselves. So it's simply not true that pro lifers only care about the unborn. All right, another objection: If aborted babies go to heaven, then why be opposed to abortion? Surely not all those children would have been saved had they lived to adulthood. So aborting them guarantees that they won't be lost. In other words, if you abort them, they all go to heaven. Isn't that what you want? <laughs> Isn't that what Christians want or people that go to heaven? So if the babies that are aborted go to heaven, shouldn't Christians be rejoicing over this rather than condemning abortion? Well, let's think about this. This objection makes several theological presuppositions, which may or may not be true. And I'm not taking a position per se on these, but just to point out what these theological presuppositions are, you're assuming, number one, that there's some age of accountability, where if a child dies before a certain age, that they're not held morally accountable. You know, they don't, they're not held accountable for obviously their own sin if they're in the womb, um, nor are they held accountable for Adam's sin or original sin. But that's disputable. Is there an age of accountability? You have to assume that there is for this objection to go through. Also, it assumes the truth of Arminianism. 
rather than Calvinism. So these are views on how one is saved. Arminianism would say that while God provides the means for our salvation, we are involved in the process and that we have to accept the salvation. Whereas a Calvinist would say that salvation is a sovereign act of God alone. We are not involved in the process. God saves us out of a sovereign choice. And then after we are saved, that's when we believe on him and follow him. And on Calvinism, some people are elected to salvation while others are not elected to salvation. So on Arminianism, where one's choice is involved in whether they are saved or not, then you could say, well, since infants can't make that choice, then God just saves them all unilaterally. But on Calvinism, where some people are elect and some people are not elect, it could be that some of these aborted children are part of the elect and they will be saved, and others are not part of the elect and they will not be saved. So it may not be the case that all these aborted babies go to heaven if Calvinism's true or if there is no age of accountability or a combination of those two. So you have to make certain theological presuppositions that may or may not be true. But let's just assume that Arminianism is true or that God has chosen to elect all aborted babies and there is an age of accountability. However, you'd work it out so that 100% of aborted babies go to heaven. What then? Well, first of all, the end does not justify the means. Christianity does not endorse a utilitarian ethic, but rather a deontological ethic. So what's the difference? Well, a utilitarian ethic says that the goodness or desirability of the outcome justifies the means to achieve that outcome. So if the outcome is good, if the outcome is desirable, whatever the end is, then the means that are required in order to get to that end are all morally acceptable or morally good. Whereas in deontological ethics, the end does not justify the means. Your end may be good, but you have to not only have a good end, you have to have good means as well. The means and the ends both must be good for it to be a good act. Whereas in utilitarianism, only the end has to be good. The means could be bad, and that would be acceptable. So in the Christian worldview, in a deontological ethical system, there are moral obligations that we have that must be upheld regardless of the outcome. And so we have a moral obligation to protect innocent people from being murdered, and therefore the Christian is going to be opposed to abortion, regardless of what the outcome is if the baby um, you know, is aborted in regards to its eternal destiny. Abortion is wrong, even if the end of that child would be good. And then if you're going to say that you know, Christians should support abortion because it guarantees all these kids go to heaven. Well, then essentially you're endorsing a view that I would just call murder evangelism. I mean, it's like, should we support evangelism by homicide? Is that how we convert people? That's how we get them to heaven? And given the logic of this objection, why don't we 
all become abortion doctors. I mean, maybe that's what Christians should do. All become abortion doctors and encourage women to abort their babies so that we can get more and more people into heaven. Well, I think that would be absurd. You say, well, maybe that's not absurd. Let me take it to the next level to show you how absurd this is. Because if killing people before the age of accountability guarantees that they go to heaven, then why stop with the unborn? This objection would not only justify abortion, it would also justify infanticide. In fact, it could justify killing children up to, you know, who knows, maybe four or five, six years old. Or if you're Catholic, I think the age of accountability in Catholicism is considered 12. So you could kill a child up to 11 years old and you'd be doing a moral good? Obviously not. It'd be morally wrong to kill the born and therefore it would be equally morally wrong to kill the unborn because there is no moral difference between the unborn and the born. What we're trying to do is stop people from committing moral evils, and we are always obliged to do what we can to minimize actual evils. I invite you to join the mission of Thinking to Believe by becoming a monthly donor or contributing a one-time investment. Your financial contributions, whether big or small, are vital to the growth of this vision. Through your financial partnership, we can reach more people with the truth of Christianity and provide much-needed theological training for believers. Give via PayPal or Venmo by visiting thinkingtobelieve.com slash support. All right, next, next objection. I could never give my own child away. I've heard this quite a bit from women, and it boggles my mind. They say, I could not give my child up for adoption. So when you suggest, well, there's an alternative to abortion, just give your child up for adoption. They're like, I could never do that. I could never have where my child is you know, being raised by somebody else and I abandoned them. But you could murder your own child? Are you saying that you find it emotionally easier to murder your own child to prevent it from ever seeing the light of day, from prevent it from ever being able to pursue a life of happiness. You, you find it emotionally easier to murder your child than to give your child to somebody else who can love and take care of your child. Now, if you think of it like that, obviously one course of action is so much worse than the other. The idea that somehow murdering your child is better than giving your child away to a, a family who wants the child, to me, is morally confused at best and morally evil at worst. All right, now for our last objection. Is abortion justified when a mother's life is at risk? Is abortion justified when a mother's life is at risk? Now, this one's a little more complicated, and it's something that many pro-lifers are confused on, um, but most pro-life ethicists would answer this objection by saying, yes, it is justified when a mother's life is at risk. However, they would not necessarily agree that, that this act should be considered an abortion. So let's, let's talk about this. Um, when would a mother's life be at risk? Well, there's actually not too many situations where a mother's life is at risk given 
today's technology. But one clear example is that of ectopic pregnancy. Now, an ectopic pregnancy is when an, an embryo is created. And of course, it takes several days to travel um, down the fallopian tubes to get into the uterus. And once in the uterus, it's supposed to attach to the uterine wall. And that's where it's going to live for the next nine months. But if it gets stuck in the fallopian tubes and doesn't move out of the tubes, and it will continue to grow there rather than in the uterus. And if nothing is done, then the mother's life is at risk. And so there's often a surgery done where the embryo is removed from the fallopian tubes in order to save the mother's life. Now, is this moral or is this not moral? Well, if we do nothing, in the case of an ectopic pregnancy, if nothing is done, then what will the outcome be? Well, mom and baby are both going to die. So from the pro-life point of view, what you would have is two valuable, innocent human beings dying. Whereas if you act and intervene in the situation, then only one will die. And because our abiding moral principle is the preservation of life, then we should act in order to save one life rather than losing two. And indeed, I would argue that it would be immoral to just sit back and do nothing and let both uh, the mother and the child die when we have it in our power to act in order to save at least one. Kind of like if you saw two people drowning in the uh, river and you only have the time and the ability to save one, then you should act to save that one. You wouldn't just sit idly by and do nothing. So we have to act in order to save one. And in this case, it's impossible to save the baby given our current technology. So we must save the mother. And that requires that the embryo be removed from the fallopian tubes. And of course, the embryo will die as a result of it being removed from the fallopian tube. So it does kill the embryo, but there's two points I want to make about this. Number one, that this act is not an abortion. And number two, that it is not immoral to do this. Let's first discuss that it's not an abortion. Now, I actually had changed my position on this. Years ago, I argued that it should still be considered an abortion. Um, I've since changed my mind on that. And I've changed my mind partly because of how I think that we should define abortion. And I defined this in one of our earlier episodes, like second or so episode, where I said an abortion is any act that intends to prematurely and artificially take the life of an unborn human being. And that word intends is very important because it does address particular situations like this with a topic pregnancy. When the doctor goes in to remove the embryo from the fallopian tubes, the intent is not to take the life of that embryo. The intent is simply to move the embryo out of the fallopian tubes in order to save the mother's life. It's a life-saving surgery. But the purpose is not to kill the embryo. Now, that is the foreseen effect, given our current technology. I mean, if we had artificial wombs that you could transport the embryo into and it could still grow, then this whole problem would be resolved. You could save both lives. But right now, we can only save one. So it is foreseen that the embryo will die as a result of this act, but that's not the intended effect. 
Which brings me to the next point. While this kills the embryo, it's not an abortion and it's not immoral. One is not doing a moral evil when they do an ectopic surgery. And that's because of the principle of double effect. And in the principle of double effect, it takes into consideration that you may foresee a certain effect, but it's not the intention. So there are four aspects to the principle of double effect. And if all these different aspects can be fulfilled, then the act uh, would be moral. Number one, the act must be good in itself. In this case, it is a good act to do life-saving surgery in order to save a woman's life. Number two, the agent must intend the good effect and not intend the evil effect. Well, in this case here, the doctor's intentions of removing the embryo is not that he wants to kill babies. Rather, his intention is to save the mother's life, and that is a, uh, a, an intention towards a good effect. Number three, the effect must be good, or at least the good and evil must be commensurate to one another. So the good effect must not be the result of the evil one. So we can't have anywhere, you know, like the evil produces good. Number four, there must be a grave reason to justify the act. In this case here, a woman's life is on the line and therefore this is justified. So since an ectopic surgery meets all four conditions of the principle of double effect, it is considered to be a moral act. Again, our goal is not to kill the child, it is to save the mother's life, even though the foreseen effect of the act will result in the death of the embryo. Now, some will say, well, aren't you being inconsistent here? Even pro-lifers have often said this. At one point, I used to think that uh, it would be wrong to uh, perform an ectopic surgery. But no, we're not being inconsistent here. It's very different from elective abortion. In typical abortions, number one, only the life of the mother is valued as being fully human. Uh, Number two, the life of the mother in this case, or in the case of abortion, is not in danger. She's choosing abortion because she just wants to have an abortion. She doesn't want the child for various reasons, um, usually reasons of convenience. And number three, In the case of typical abortions, the life of the unborn is not valued and can be discarded at will. But in the case of ectopic surgery, in this life-saving procedure, both the mother's life and the child's life are valued equally. Both are considered full human beings. And the medical act is not a disregard of human life, but an act of honoring and preserving human life at least as much life as can be preserved given the situation. So I think in the case of ectopic pregnancies, uh, the only life that can be saved is the mother's and it would actually be immoral to do nothing. We must act. And the action that we must take is to remove the embryo from the fallopian tubes, which will result in the foreseen effect of killing the embryo, but that is not the intended effect. Um, It is the principle of double effect and therefore It is a moral action. Now, what about cancer? We talked about ectopic pregnancy, but what about cancer? Is that also uh, a situation that could justify abortion? I'm thinking here of women who are pregnant 
And while they are pregnant, they are diagnosed with cancer and told they need to undergo chemotherapy. And that's the only way that her life is going to be saved. But if she undergoes chemotherapy, that could either harm the baby or kill the baby. So what should she do? What is the moral thing? Well, I'll first note that it's not guaranteed that the baby will be harmed, at least significantly, or killed by the chemotherapy. So it's not as if we are absolutely certain that the baby will die or come out severely deformed or whatever else. Um, That's not guaranteed. So it could be that you undergo the chemotherapy and the baby turns out just fine. And that may have something to do with how far along you are uh, in the gestational process. And I haven't read up on all of this to know all the details, so I'm not giving advice, but it's something to look into. Um, But again, the principle of double effect uh, would apply here, where the goal of the chemotherapy is not to kill the child or maim the child. Rather, it is to preserve the life of the mother. That is the goal. So it could have the unintended effect of harming the child, but that is not the intended effect. And therefore, the principle of double effect would apply here. And I think a woman is morally permissible. It's morally permissible for a woman to undergo chemotherapy while she is pregnant, even if that means that her child may be harmed or die in the process. However, some women will choose against this. In fact, I once worked with a woman who found out she had cancer while she was pregnant, and she chose not to undergo chemotherapy, thereby ensuring the safety of her child, but jeopardizing her own life. Now, I do not know what happened in that particular situation because I left that office and never heard what the result was. Um, But in many cases, that might be an answer too. You just postpone the chemotherapy and perhaps you know your cancer is at an earlier uh, early enough stage where the chemotherapy will still be effective even after the child's born or you may end up losing your life if you choose not to undergo the chemotherapy but ultimately i think this is a personal choice of conscience and a choice that involves practicalities when you're choosing i, I think it would be just as moral to choose the life of the mother as it would be to choose the life of the baby I don't think either decision is morally superior, but there could be some practical things to consider in the process. So for example, let's say the woman already has three other children. Well, those children need a mother. If the mother's life is, or I should say, if the unborn baby's life is chosen over the mother's, then these three children lose their mother. And a husband loses his wife. So there are considerations that take into effect here. Whether you may say that, you know, the mother's practical value to the family is such that we are going to choose, when we have to choose between one or the other, we're going to choose the life of the mother. And I don't think those, you know, considering practical issues is wrong in this particular case. It's actually needed. That's part of the wisdom involved in knowing how to apply moral principles to morally difficult situations. All right, well, that wraps up the objections section. Um, As I said, there's other objections you could raise, but um, I think those are the most important objections to consider. So let me leave you with this. What can you do? What can you do to further the pro-life cause? I'm going to give you five 
areas I think that you can get involved with to help reduce or possibly eliminate in the future the number of abortions. Number one, politics. Voting. I'm not saying you have to form a political party around abortion. Uh, I'm not saying you have to be a politician. But at the very least, as citizens of this nation, when there are issues relating to abortion, vote. Make your voice heard. And I would further suggest, and this may be controversial, uh, I will, in the future, maybe in a couple of years, I'll do a thing on um, politics and Christians' relationship to politics and thinking that through from a Christian worldview. But it is my firm conviction that abortion is the worst moral evil of our day. And when it comes to voting and it comes to political parties, there is one party that fully supports abortion, radical abortion rights, and another party that is opposed to it. Why would we give political power to a party that has stated their intention of ensuring that as many women as want can kill their own children? Would we give our vote to a political party whose platform included the right to own people? They were pro-slavery. No, you would think that would be wrong. Would we give our, our power to a party that was for the killing of Jews, like to Hitler and Nazi Germany? No. Then why do we give power to a party whose stated intention and one of their primary uh, platform ob- objectives is the furtherance of abortion rights? When it comes to voting, I don't think we should, not only should we vote against any pro-abortion legislation and vote for any um, anti-abortion legislation, but we should also try to vote for the party who is actually working to eliminate abortion. So get involved in politics, at least at the level of voting, so we can make a difference uh, with with our voice in this country. It's one thing to say you're pro-life, but what are you going to do about that? In this country, we elect people to represent us, and then we also have the opportunity to vote directly in a democratic way with you know ballot initiatives and things like that. We need to do our part as the government. The people are the government in order to ensure that this barbaric practice stops in this nation. So get involved in politics with your vote at the very least. Number two, be vocal about your pro-life view. Make the argument for the pro-life point of view. I mean, if you have a blog, if you're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, there are all sorts of ways that you can make it known that you're pro-life. And even if you're not necessarily engaging in debates with people, which I'm not saying you have to do, even just posting a a picture on Instagram that says, I am pro-life, the more people see others saying they're pro-life, they they start it's, it's the thing about perception. Like you know, you like uh, foreigners that all they know about American culture is Hollywood. They think that all of America is this totally immoral, crazy place. No, the leftist Hollywood people are immoral and crazy. That's not all of America. But their perception is that all of America is like that because that's all they see. So perception matters in this case. If you start seeing a lot of people 
saying that they're pro-life, you start thinking, oh, this is a popular point of view. This is acceptable. Now you're more emboldened to be pro-life. It's kind of like with political signs. You know, you kind of gauge the popularity of a candidate by how many signs you see in the front yard. And you can kind of tell, is this city more pro this group or pro that group or pro this candidate or pro that candidate based on the number of signs you see? Same thing with posts on Facebook and Twitter. Talk about this issue. Make the case. Number three, one-on-one ministry. We're not going to make a difference just you know, with with politics. This is a one-on-one. Talking to people. People who are considering abortion, talk to them. Tell them why they should not abort. Be their support system. You're not going to eliminate abortion just by making it illegal. We have to make it unthinkable by talking to people one-on-one and ministering to them, persuading them, etc. So get involved in politics, be vocal on social media and elsewhere. Um, one-on-one conversations, one-on-one ministry. Number four, volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center. I mentioned these centers earlier. They would love to have your help. Volunteer there. You will make a difference, not only in saving babies, but also in helping those who are in need. And fifth, marches. Every year there's the pro-life march, and I think it's Washington, D.C. And, you know, I've, I've never been a big march guy. I've never, in fact, even though I'm saying get involved in marches, I've never done a pro-life march. I've never known one in this area, and I'm not about to fly to Washington, D.C. to do the pro-life march, but many people do. And guess what? Again, there's something about perception. Do I think marches make a huge difference to influence people? Not necessarily, but it does show support. And you get a gauge for how many people care about an issue. That's why when somebody holds a a a march or a protest and that you see only seven people showed up, you're like, ha ha ha, nobody really cares about this issue. But if a hundred thousand show up, it's like, oh, we need to take this seriously. People are mad because we know that generally speaking, it takes a lot to get somebody to take a day off of work to come out and march in the street for some particular purpose. So it, it sends a message to legislators, to city officials, um, it sends a message to other citizens about how popular a position is and how important that issue is to them. So there's lots that we can do when it comes to uh, spreading the pro-life point of view and making abortion unthinkable. Well, there you have it. That's the series on abortion. And I'm so thankful that you have been on this journey for 17 episodes now, but I do hope that through this whole process, you have really gained a lot of insights into the issue and have been equipped to, well, persuaded yourself and then equipped to spread the pro-life point of view. Well, I know you probably figured abortion is the only thing I'm going to talk about on this podcast, but we're actually moving on from that. The next topic we're going to discuss is theology. Not in any particular theology, but the idea of theology in general. What is theology? Why does it matter? Who needs theology? What is the practical value of it? So I'll have two episodes coming out uh, to explain the value of theology, how it functions, and why it is so important for believers to study theology. So stay tuned for that. To read my latest thoughts, visit the Thinking to Believe blog at thinkingtobelieve.com 
or if you'd like to comment on today's podcast, you can do so at the Thinking to Believe Facebook page. You can also send me any questions you might have at thinkingtobelieve at gmail.com. Until next time, keep thinking to believe.